WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emmanuel Berry. Tonight on the show, we review the 54th District Judge debate, the student housing rush, and discuss the wonderment of a Michigan-brewed beer. But first, last night marked the third and final presidential debate to talk about how the candidates fared. In the series, we welcome in studio MSU head debate coach Will Repko. Welcome to Impact Exposure again. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. Uh, well, last time you were here, um, we, we were previewing the debates. Debates haven't happened yet. Uh, so did anything go unexpected for you from what you had previously thought um, in the series of debates? Was anything different than what you had thought it would be? Most people think that the debates are, you know, formulaic and that they play out exactly as they would imagine. I don't know how you could think that in this set of presidential debates. Looking at them overall, the thing that surprised me the most was the moderators. There were tons <laughs> of interruptions. People spoke off topic. Uh, I really got away from the moderators, but there were tons of interesting moments. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of those interesting moments. What were some of the things that you that really stood out um, in, in these three debates and in the vice presidential debate as well, if you want to go there? Um, well, vice presidential debate, <laughs> Joe Biden's interruptions were, you know, something for SNL parody for yeah. sure. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, I thought that the real trick to these debates is to avoid a moment where you have a huge gaffe, a moment that will get replayed thousands of times the next day on all the cable news networks. And I I guess I thought that no one had an awful gaffe, but there were a few moments when Governor Romney with binders full of women or the president with bayonets and horses had moments that did generate a lot of attention. Um, so a lot of people were really kind of disappointed by President Obama's performance in the first debate. Um, do you think that was part of the strategy? Um, and I guess do you think the, the candidates changed their styles or changed um, their positions um, through the course of the three debates? There were many adjustments. And one of the surprising features for certain was that the president came out so flat in the first debate. He has a reputation for being very articulate, a wonderful debater. And not only did he fare poorly in that debate, but the polls swung dramatically in the wake of it. And then everyone adjusted. The vice president came out in the second overall portion of the series, was much more aggressive. And you saw the Democrats get increasingly aggressive from that point forward. And some felt that last night, Governor Romney spent a lot of time agreeing uh, and lost a little bit of the aggression that maybe we had seen dating back to the first debate in Denver. Um, so let's talk a little bit about last night's debate. Uh, so international policy. Do you think going in that either one of them had more of an advantage than the other one? Well, yes and no. I think that the president certainly would love to have every debate be about foreign policy, <laughs> at least against this particular opponent. The president and the vice president have more experience in mm -hmm. foreign affairs than the Republican ticket. That said, Governor Romney, I think, did an effective job of pivoting to the point where the closing statements that he made in a foreign policy debate were almost entirely about the United States economy. So how do you judge that debate? Do you yeah. say he did the right thing because that's the issue that people want to talk about or do you mark him down because he pivoted to such an extraordinary degree away from foreign policy? Do you think there's a, a clear winner in any of these debates it, it, in in the first, second and third? is. Is there a declared champion um, for each one? I was amazed that, you know, we went around the country, the debate team did, and we watched these debates with young people. And in every debate that we went to, people pointed to the exact moments. All the students pointed out that President Obama had a poor showing in the first debate. Everyone thought that the vice president interrupted too much. Everyone pointed out those moments. I thought that the president clearly lost the first debate. It was clearly tied up one-to-one. -one. I thought last night was the closest of the three presidential debates, but I marked it slightly in favor of the president last evening. 
Um, so, you, yeah, talk a little bit. You, you mentioned that you were traveling around the country um, with the Spartan debate team. So uh, it's what is the Spartan presidential debate series? And talk a little bit about that experience. The university sponsored an outreach effort with the debate team. Uh, and we went to Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas. And then last evening we were in East Lansing having watch parties and trying to get young people to watch their first presidential debate. And we targeted high school-aged kids, many of whom couldn't vote, just to get them involved. And we reached the lives of a lot of people, not only in this state, but around the country. I'm very excited about it. Were the kids, were people engaged? Do you think that they actually were like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, I'm, I'm always going to watch presidential debates from now on for the rest of my life. Uh, do you think you made an impact For the there? first half hour, 90 <laughs> minutes, uh, you know, whereas it's a lot longer than a sitcom. Uh, and the, you could feel the nights that we were competing with Monday Night Football and the Tigers. You could feel that. Um, but there was a lot of energy, especially at first. And by 1030, sometimes high school kids were getting tired. And you said that there were a lot of things that is going on that these students could point out. Um, did you feel like younger people were leaning in one direction or the other um, politically um, or not? So I think it varied with what states we went to. When we went to Chicago, there were a lot of supporters of President Obama in the audience. But when we went to some of the red states, when we were in Georgia and Texas, there was a different vibe in the room. So geography matters. And I guess, why do you think it's important for kids to get involved in politics at a younger age? What What is the relevance or importance of that for their lives? I worry when I watch these debates that the candidates don't really answer the questions in front of them, but say things that polling would suggest that voters want to hear. If you get young people a little bit more informed, then when it comes their turn to vote, they'll mark these candidates a lot more on the content of how they're answering these questions and less on image. And I think that that is very important. Now, these debates, a lot of times people are like, oh, the the debates don't matter. They're not going to make a difference per se. Um, But these debates really seem to make a difference in the polls. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? And is that surprising or is, is that what you would expect? I've heard for years now that the debates don't matter. And just after the first debate in Denver, how could you suggest that they don't matter? (laughs) You know, it was such an enormous swing in polling. And it's just a different era. I mean, 50 million people watch these debates and even more people pay attention the next morning on the headlines. It's it's hard to argue that the debates don't make a meaningful difference, in my opinion. And do you think um, part of that plays, I, uh, did you guys use any social media with your Spartan presidential debate? I know a lot of people are on Twitter as mm-hmm. the debates are going on. Uh, did you guys do any of that? Yeah, we were excited that the Lansing State Journal handed over the Twitter feed in part to the MSU debate team and the students in the room for the final presidential debate last night. And it gave these young people more of a megaphone than they might normally have. Their opinions, I think, were really heard and you know, we appreciate the coordination that we had with all the social media and all the area outlets that helped us out. Um, in looking at the debates, what do you think each of the candidates gained from doing the debates or, or lost, perhaps, in doing the debates? What, what, what did they prove anything, I guess, in doing it? Well, there's different answers for each candidate. I would say that if Governor Romney could repeat his showing from the first debate every day from this point forward, he would take it. He gained a huge bump in the polls. There's the obvious answer that we learned more about these candidates and their actual positions. And I think we saw a bit of the way that these candidates handle pressure. And by and large, I think people were fairly impressed with how both candidates handled tough questions. Um, and I guess, uh, what it, w- the election is in less than two weeks, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, not terrifying, but, uh, what do you think, uh, going forward? Are people going to keep look, is, is this the thing that people are going to look back to? Does the campaigning even matter at, at this point so much as like, uh, will these debates overshadow, um, the next two weeks? I think that, you know, it's not my area of expertise, but I do think that the next two weeks will be about turnout, whereas maybe the last two weeks were about impressing who was undecided. Uh, And the debates 
we'll choose to look back at them from the perspective of who wins. So if one candidate wins, we'll point to that candidate's strong showing in the debates. And if another candidate wins, it'll be the reverse. But I, I do think that this race tightened as a result of the debates, and that's meaningful as we come close to the finish line. And I know you already mentioned uh, talking about political gas and, you know, the mm -hmm. things that we remember. Um, but can you is there one line that, you know, years from now that you're going to think back to this debate series that that really sticks out to you? That's going to be the thing that you remember. I was in Dallas, Texas. I was surrounded by female voters, not just high school students, some of whom were very conservative some of whom were very liberal, and every female that I spoke with mentioned binders full of women. And for me, I then asked a bunch of men about that line. It didn't seem to bother them anywhere near as much. For me, that is the line that I will remember because of how different the reaction was in the particular audience that I happened to be with that evening. I don't know if that'll be remembered historically as a turning point, but it was stark, and I was surprised. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us tonight on Exposure and recapping this, I would say, an exciting debate series. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you again for having me. And that, that was MSU's head debate coach, Will Coe, uh, recapping the presidential debate series. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... <coughs> I was wondering if you... If I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No! Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. This past week, the Associated Students of Michigan State University hosted a debate between the two candidates running for the 54th District Judge. Mark Meadows and Andrea Larkin discussed many issues, including parking tickets, drinking on campus, littering, and noise complaints. Impact's Abby Newton reports. Michigan State students gathered in the Kellogg Center as Meadows and Larkin stood at podiums in the front of the room to debate for the position of 54B District Judge. Although this debate did not have as much intensity or as many cameras as the recent presidential debates, it provided students with a unique opportunity to understand the candidates firsthand. ASMSU Vice President for Governmental Affairs Dylan Miller organized the debate because he felt it was an election that affected MSU students. It's uh, getting students to be more, or more interested or more aware of both the local elections and the impact that those can have on them as well as uh, the nonpartisan part of the ballot, because there is, you know, after all the partisan elections, there are nonpartisan elections, and this is one of them. And some people tend to uh, overlook those because they just, uh, they'll just vote by the ticket along one of the party lines. So. James Madison freshman Connor Metzen said he came to the debate so he could get a better idea of who he wanted to vote for. Well, I heard about it on the James Madison email listserv, and I was also interested in figuring out which candidate I wanted to vote for since I haven't done a lot of research. So I'm interested in hearing a good debate, and uh, I'm hoping that I might be able to get insight on a couple questions I have. Now, 85% of the cases the 54B District Court hears involves Michigan State students. 
Sophomore environmental studies student Joanne Lewis said she came to the debate because the elected judge will impact her life as a student. Well, these are people who will be in charge and they're going to be dealing with like misdemeanors and stuff and I feel like students, they'll basically be judging students. So I feel like this is something that will affect all of us. The candidates spoke about how they would handle specific situations as well as why they should be elected. Candidate Larkin said, if elected, she hopes to make an impact as 54B district judge. The impact I'd really like to make is to uh, fashion, in the case of nonviolent crimes and crimes where there's not a lot of property damage, uh, alternative methods of sentencing, um, creative methods that will enable somebody to get through Michigan State without having a criminal record so they can go on to the bright future that uh, is afforded them by having a college degree. I'd, I'd like to continue the Veterans Court. I'd like to take that whole model of volunteer community mentors and move it also to uh, the domestic violence area and kids at MSU with sobriety problems, whether it be caused by drugs or alcohol. I'd like to fashion treatment and rehabilitation. While candidate Meadows said if elected, he would engage with students and the community. You know, I, I hope to make the same impact that I've tried to make in every position that people have elected me to, which is to provide a steady connection, uh, a personal connection uh, to the community. So uh, one of the reasons I said that I'd, I'd probably not be in the ivory tower, I'd be over here interacting with uh, the different clubs and, uh, and interest groups that might be on campus is because I think that judges need to be part of the community, not just somebody who shows up in the courtroom and doesn't really interact. And I don't think that the canons of judicial ethics or other things prevent that from happening. I think that some people are just not comfortable uh, with other people. And um, that tends to be more judges than it uh, does other types of uh, uh, individuals who run for political office. And I'm more used to actually talking to you, shaking your hand, and finding out what concerns you. I think it's important for judges to do that, too. Meadows was pleased to see students attend the debate. He believes students are a very important part of the East Lansing community. It's important to remember that students are really, I mean, the university is the reason East Lansing exists. And it's the biggest employer uh, in my legislative district. The Michigan Education Association is the biggest taxpayer in the city. It's Education is our business, and students are an absolute, uh, absolutely an important element of the life here. But there's such vibrancy and energy in this community, and no matter who you talk to, nobody says, get rid of students, because they bring such a life to the community. So I think people need to remember that. The debate also informs students of important East Lansing laws. Miller said he organized the event to both enhance student interest in local elections and students' awareness of certain laws and ordinances that affect them. Uh, I'm happy because it served uh, both the purposes that I wanted, which was one, for us to learn more about both uh, Andrea Larkin and Mark Meadows, uh, but also for the students who attend to be more aware of the, uh, of the um, laws in East Lansing or of the ordinances. Um, and how those can affect them because a lot of students said afterwards that they were unaware of uh, some of the ordinances that uh, questions were asked about or they were unaware of how harsh some of those were. So it simultaneously educates students about the potential judge and about the uh, ordinances that may unfortunately put them in front of that judge. One ordinance surprising to MSU students was about noise violations. According to the City of East Lansing's website, after 11 p.m., noise that disturbs neighbors will be written as a misdemeanor offense. People also receive a misdemeanor if two of the following occur. A common source of alcohol is used to serve guests. A live band or DJ is provided. Guests are charged to gain entrance or to consume alcohol. Music speakers are directed outside the building. Or outdoor drinking games are played. Another ordinance affecting students is parking violations. There is no parking allowed on any residential street from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. or any other street from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Also, people are not allowed to park in yards, even if it is their own. At the conclusion of the debate, both candidates encouraged students to vote. Larkin said students need to be sure to give attention to the nonpartisan section of the ballot. I would just like to encourage people, A, to get out and vote. That's very important. But a lot of times students feel like if they 
uh, vote a straight party ticket, either for all Republicans or all Democrats, or even go through and vote uh, independently for president and senator, et cetera, that they've done their job. Uh, there are a lot of important ballot measures on uh, this year's ballot. And the judges, we nonpartisan uh, uh, candidates, are at the bottom of the ballot. And so just want to encourage them to get to the nonpartisan section of the ballot to look over the whole thing before they hand it in, because this will affect their college home for the next four years. Reporting for Impact, this is Abby Newton. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, Cuddle Bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. Manuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. The liquor license process in Michigan is about to undergo a change. Impact's Thea Card explains. Michigan is in the process of making it easier and faster for businesses to obtain a liquor license. This new law would help Michigan business owners get a liquor license much faster. Currently, it can take several months to obtain a liquor license. No liquor is to be sold at all in that time. Public Information Officer Andrea Miller at the Michigan Liquor Control Commission said in an email that over 17,000 retail businesses have one or more licenses to sell alcoholic beverages. Although the commission doesn't have the authority to make new laws, the commission protects the public from proliferation of alcoholic beverage establishments. If it is easier to get a liquor license and more places begin to serve, will that affect how many people frequent Michigan businesses? No, not really. I'm not very much into drinking. Although she doesn't drink, Michigan State University German junior Kayla Kruch feels that this new law will pose a threat to businesses in Michigan that have had liquor licenses. There are going to be a lot more places that have liquor licenses. They're going to sell a lot more alcohol. Well, the bars that are there now definitely will have competition. They kind of should be grandfathered in to be the only bars. In the meantime, businesses could get the conditional license within two weeks of the law being passed. One 
Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. That was the ACARD reporting on new legislation that would make getting a liquor license easier. And perhaps in those businesses looking for liquor licenses are hoping to serve Michigan craft beers. The Michigan brewing industry is booming, and one person who appreciates Michigan craft beers is Paul Starr. Starr is the founder of I'm a Beer Hound website, space dedicated to Michigan brewing. Paul's in studio to talk to us today about lovely Michigan beers. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Thanks for having me. Um, so how did, what got this project started? What inspired you to start drinking and writing about beer in Michigan? Well, I, I had a passion for just trying different beers and, and just uh, sampling. And the problem was that at least then there wasn't a great online presence um, or a, a website that you could go and just get tons of information. I'm, you know, I'm a web designer and I was like, well, this would be a great thing to to do and really kind of just for myself more it's just as much for myself as much for everyone else and that's kind of how I, I started it and um i got the term um beer hound kind of a playoff of booze hound mm-hmm. and um my and we chose the basset hound because um one of my friends um he had an entertainment center in the basement and um, you know, the Basset Hound's legs are really short and he didn't want to climb the stairs. So they put a beer at the top of the stairs and that was, uh, would, would make him <laughs> get to the top. And that to me was what defined what a beer hound was. And that's how we have the Basset Hound for the logo and stuff. And actually someone pointed out too, that, um, beer is really as much about the nose and all and the nose of, of the beer. And that's why the Basset Hound, the ears are so long cause that enhances the, the smell, um, and stuff so it's pretty interesting so you're perfect matt scott you've got a website going um why did you cho- choose to dedicate it to michigan beers specifically well when i started it um it's kind of all you you saw around was kind of negativity with everything else in in michigan people leave in michigan and i kind of just wanted to have something that was positive and i could talk about the good things that are happening in michigan and and really try to kind of help Hey, there's some great some great breweries, some great restaurants that serving, um, the you know brew, Michigan beers and stuff like that. And that's kind of the main focus is just um, I didn't want to be a part of the negativity. I wanted to kind of put some positive stuff out there for Michigan. So on your website, you offer reviews of beers from everywhere. Talk a little bit about how that works and how you get your content that you feed to your page. We don't so much anymore. It's um, we have some old stuff, some video beer reviews, but we don't really review beers too much anymore. Um, we review like restaurants and uh, breweries more so, and and um, event coverage. So we'll kind of uh, promote kind of events that's going on, or also um, do a recap. Um, for instance, we'll we'll be at the Detroit Fall Beer Fest this this weekend, and uh, you know have some coverage of that. But uh, that's kind of what we do, and we just have events calendar, just kind of let people know what's going on. And people um, right now can review their favorite um, restaurant, beer bar, breweries, and stuff like that. And we're adding, like, homebrew shops and all all that kind of stuff to it. So it's really about fostering a community about this particular sector of the Michigan economy. Yeah. Yep. Um, So... What makes a good beer to you? What it, I know you don't necessarily do reviews anymore, but uh, what is it that makes a beer worth it for you? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a, a loaded... I guess it's it's kind of a loaded question. Yeah. Um, there's several things that, that make a good um, make a good beer. Obviously, you know, have good water and, you know, all the ingredients and stuff like that. Um, it really just depends on each person what style they like and what they define a good beer is um for me um you know i like just about all kinds of styles and really um i kind of go seasonal like so the summertime um i really like saisons and hefeweizens and lagers and now kind of we're getting um oktoberfest is kind of coming out of season mm-hmm. right now and i absolutely love oktoberfest beers and you get kind of the browns the stouts and the barley wines and the Christmas ales are coming up, and so I'm, I'm very seasonal. I don't really say I like one, just one style, but um, there's so much out there. And I, I mean, the, the thing is that I, I always kind of say it's everybody's personal opinion. I, I might think, you know, um, a beer isn't good, but somebody else likes it. So it's kind of hard to, 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 to really choose, to yeah. choose the one. Yep. Uh, so. There, like I've said, there's been a, a great increase in the number of people brewing beer in Michigan. Do you think that people have caught on to this? Is this something that people are realizing that there's this kind of growing culture? Or do you think people don't appreciate that you got these 
really quality, unique beers um, being brewed right here. I think there are people appreciating it, but I mean, I think roughly uh, the number that's thrown out there is the craft beer only holds 5% of the market here. Um, in some states, it's someone said that like Oregon might be 40, but I don't know if that number was correct. Um, I think that it's just, it's coming. I mean, I, I think that for a little bit, we're behind the curve because, I mean, you have to have like be educated about beer. I mean, you can't really just learn about beer what you see on a commercial like triple hops brewed i mean that's um every beer is triple hops brewed you know that third time it's just a you know a hint of hop so um it's just beer education is going to come and just people tasting and you know i have so many people come up to me and say i don't like dark beers and i say well do you like coffee and everybody assumes that every dark beer is like guinness and um, my personal preference i i personally don't don't like guinness mm -hmm. it's not my um, I'm not. I don't really like nitro stouts a ton. I mean, I like oatmeal and, you know, bourbon is good and you know, you know, stuff like that. But um, I just try to kind of. I just say if you you know you go to a brewery, just just get a flight of beer and just you might be you might be amazed that, uh, you know, or you can go to restaurants that, that have flights now too. But I think the culture. I think it, I mean the craft beer is kind of like a culture. I mean it's, um, it's just people. It, it's people from. 21 to 60 just having good conversation and, and enjoying it's it's really not about um you know getting hammered it's just about appreciating beer and, and having good conversation and i guess what role do you see your website playing in in this growing culture well i mean i'm trying to gear my site to be um kind of the source online for you know michigan beer um i, I kind of want to be like uh um, like a beer advocate, I mean, beer advocates, you know, is probably the, the biggest player out there. But I want to <laughs> yeah. be, you know, if somebody wants to know something about Michigan beer, they go to my site. And that's that's kind of really what I'm gearing it towards. And, and we got a lot of things in the works for uh, 2013. So, And you mentioned that there are, you have a Detroit Beer Fest is this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, what are some other events that are coming up beer focused uh, in the near future? Well, this week was the, is Detroit Beer Week that kind of leads up to the festivals. Um Offhand, I can't think of a ton of that are they're coming up because um, most most of the events are kind of usually like summertime. Then Oktoberfest time is really heavy. Once you get into November, December, it's not um, it's not as event ha heavy. But um, I would just say kind of check the site. I have my my fiance is adding all the events, <laughs> so I'm kind of busy with other stuff. So she kind of handles that. So I don't necessarily know of all the all the stuff that's that's coming up. And if people wanted to check the site, what is that web address? Um, it's iamabeerhound.com, or if you even just search Michigan Beer um, on Google, I come up third usually, so right yeah. at the top. High priorities there. Um, have you, you're such a, a fan of beer. Have you ever considered brewing your own beer or getting into that? Yeah, um, I actually, last year, I, I brewed a, a stout, and my hands um, are kind of, they, they were worse. My hands were black, because I had a black walnuts. I, I was husking them. Um, I'm gonna be brewing um a beer um with some guys in in the lansing area that are looking to start a production facility and we're gonna do um we're gonna do like a walnut stout um tentatively we're thinking um november so um yeah i, I like brewing brewing is kind of um it's kind of like cooking i mean you just it's <laughs> it's creative and and uh you can be a, a mad scientist or you want or you could you know you could follow a recipe that that uh it's just fun, you know. Brewing is is pretty cool. I'm not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, a um, uh, an expert home brewer or anything. But um, yeah, I like it. Right now with the site, I'm uh, pretty busy keeping up with that. So mm -hmm. the uh, I, I want to fit more time down the road. But I, I like doing something around Christmas and kind of giving bottles away. It's kind of a unique Christ yeah. Christmas gift. So very much so. And in the walnuts. Uh, my, my hands were were totally like like stained because it it just it, it it just stained your pigment and they they felt they I have walnut trees in my backyard so I'm mm -hmm. using them and and stuff and making it in the beer it's kind of cool. So if people in the Lansing area want to go to get a a good Michigan brewed beer, where should we go? Well, okay, I mean, there's, a <laughs> Sorry, lot, I there's a lot of places. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Taps Twenty Five downtown is really good. Crunchies in East Lansing, Beggars Banquet. Um, the Soup Spoon Cafe is really good. You got Reno's East and West. Um, there's really becoming more and more places that are slow, uh, bringing on craft beer. So it's not as even a few years ago it was hard to go in some places. They didn't have you know anything. So I mean, there's probably um, 
20 places that you can get a good selection of craft beer in the, in the Lansing market. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your wealth of beer knowledge with us today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, that was Paul Starr, his website, I'm a beerhound, uh, com, a space dedicated to Michigan brewing. Thank you once again for coming in. Yep. Thanks. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building. Without all that smoking. Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. With over 4,800 students, with over 48,000 students leasing this season, leasing season is is a crucial time for students to secure their place for next year. Impact's Lauren Godleski looks at how students deal with the pressure of leasing early. Freshman Zoe Bigger is searching for her first off-campus housing. However, she won't move in until fall of 2013 as she finishes up this year in the dorms. Like many other first-year students, Zoe realizes that she has to act fast. It kind of like jumps up on you. You don't think that you have to get it so early. I mean, I've only been at college for two months, and now I already have to find a place to live for next year. DTN, a well-known leasing agency, houses a large sum of students around East Lansing. Students have two-word apartments. This room is the only um, there, but same as that room. Uh, that one is a little on Sunday, October 14th, students stood in line hoping to secure their first choice of an apartment. To secure a spot, the DTN leasing office has a lottery system. Sophomore Sarah Cox, elementary education major, is a worker at DTN. We'll give you a ticket, and then when your ticket gets called, that's the order that it goes, and we'll pull a ticket, and whoever has that ticket number goes, and then it goes so on from that order. People understand that it's completely random. It's better than a first-come, first-served basis. Those whose numbers were called first had felt relief from the wait. (laughs) However, some students don't find the system fair. Freshmen Leslie Nido and Laura DeMarco had one of the last lottery numbers. We're pretty far back. Yeah. <laughs> no, at all. Realizing that convenient locations and inexpensive housing goes quickly, Zoe said she didn't want to take chance on the lottery system, so she went straight to Capitol Villa to sign a lease as soon as possible. Another DTN community. Uh, we found one for super inexpensive, which is kind of nice. Zoe took pricing over location into final consideration. I said, I'll only live somewhere that's a little bit farther away if it's a big price difference. But not all DTN properties are cheap. DTN employee Sarah said prices vary from apartment to apartment. A lot of people complain about our prices because they go up every year, but we don't set the prices like the head office sets them. Living in like a two-bedroom for two people in any of our complexes would be around like 700 After only a week, Cedar Village has almost reached full capacity. Probably have less than 100 apartments left to rent, and that's only been a week since opening day. For Impact Exposure, I'm Lauren Godleski. You're listening to Impact Exposure.
At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sitter Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. Gentlemen, want to hear our specials? Sure. First, we have the seafood special. It's been sitting around here for a week. We're known around these parts for our food poisoning. Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. It's called A1C, a simple blood test that can help measure your risk of complications such as heart attack. To find out more, go to www.diabetesa1c.org. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Many teachers gripe about what seems like students' inability to pull away from glossy social media screens. But it's not all bad. A new study suggests that Twitter can improve students' learning. Today on Exposure, we welcome Christine Greenhow, assistant professor in the MSU College of Education and co-author of the study Twitteracy, tweeting as a new literacy practice. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Well, thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk about... Twitter. Um, talk a little bit, how has Twitter grown in the past um, 10 years or so, and why is it something that's kind of become so relevant um, in, in students' lives? Yeah, well, it's really amazing to think that Twitter is not that old. It's only, uh, you know, 2007, 2008, and we've seen it grow from a little use site to one where 340 million users are passing some 175 million tweets back and forth. Uh, so the, the growth in Twitter has really been uh, amazing in the last few years. And we've also seen th- this growth among teenagers and young people especially. So uh, about two years ago, only 6% of teenagers used Twitter. Now it's doubled. To, uh, sorry, 8% of teenagers use, use Twitter. Now it's doubled to six, 16%. And I think that you'll see that increasing in the years to come. And has part of that increasing been because of the way that uh, Twitter has changed in its uses? Um, kind of, kind of. I mean, how do people use Twitter? Um, these teenagers who are on Twitter, what are they using it for? Sure. Well, I think you know, in the beginning, we didn't really understand uh, how, how to use it or, or or why to use it, and it was seen as, oh, I'm going to tweet about what I had for breakfast, or you know, some, <laughs> yeah. some of the more um, the, the the babble <laughs> type. Uh, uses and now I think it's increasingly become a conduit to how people get news. So I think um, news sites, especially, have seen uh, people coming to their sites through Facebook, through Twitter. So it's a way to pass along these links to information, a conduit to information. I think also it's become a, a source for a real-time social search. So um, the type of information you get doing a Google search, which Canvas is established, um, highly ranked site is different from the kind of search you can do where uh, when you post uh, on Twitter or follow a hashtag, a trending conversation on Twitter. I mean, we see this in the presidential debates where if you want to know what it's like to be on the floor of the uh, the town hall meeting and uh, and hear from people who are actually there live tweeting. Uh, you go to Twitter. So it's a very different kind of real-time social search. And people are, I think, just now starting to understand how that might be a different way of experiencing what they're watching or even what they're reading. I mean, we see magazines these days with hashtags on the cover that suggest, you know, go and read our article, but then come online and engage with other readers. So it really is, um, it it has changed, I think, from when we first using it. Yeah, I know when I'm watch- when I'm watching the presidential debates, I'm on Twitter uh, looking <laughs> looking through the comments. It makes everything so much more entertaining. Um, so, but your study, you also looked at how Twitter has changed kind of the practices and the way that students learn. So, how has Twitter done that? 
Well, yeah, so we were really interested in understanding what, uh, what the educational research literature has to say about how young people are using Twitter in, both, in all kinds of learning set, settings. So our article was a synthesis of existing research, a synthesis of what's out there in the educational research, um, to kind of come up with some insights. You know, what do we know about tweeting and learning and education? And what we found in that, what we found is number one, there isn't much research out there, and uh, understandably, this uh, phenomenon is relatively new. Um, But what we did find in looking across studies was that uh, Twitter seems to be one way of increasing uh, student-to-student interaction in the course, um, increasing student-instructor interaction, and one study actually found tweeting led to higher grades. So I think, uh, and also um, uh, engagement with the course material. So I think those studies suggest at least there may be something promising about integrating Twitter into the, most of the studies were in higher ed, into the college classroom. And I've seen this myself when I teach my course at, in the College of Education on Mind, Social Media, and Society, uh, I have seen that Twitter gets students talking to each other before and after the course. Uh, Twitter gets students sharing the kinds of information, the kinds of resources that not, aren't necessarily on the course syllabus, but they want to see integrated into the kinds of conversations we're happening. happening. So I've seen, in my own experience, students engaging with the course content in ways I couldn't have even imagined uh, through the tweet stream. Do you think part of that um, that comfort of, of doing this through Twitter is is that we're, as students are online all the time, is it easier for them to communicate in this way versus, you know, face-to-face? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it is. I mean, I think that what we know about online or computer-mediated conversation um, computer-mediated communication is that, you know, you don't have the visual cues and sort of the emotional cues, and that can make uh, expressing yourself easier for some students. And so, yeah, I think uh, I think it can be easier also that you only have to write 140 characters. <laughs> so, <laughs> who aren't, you know, prolific writers, um, it, it can be a way of, of just putting themselves out there, making their voices heard for a very low cost, low time and attention cost. Does does Twitter any way you think create a, a threat to traditional literacy in the way that we communicate? Is, is are there any negatives to um, the increased use of Twitter? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, my research hasn't. I haven't done research on this, and I haven't seen any studies that that address that issue uh, exactly. But what we do know is that there is a push toward developing in students' digital literacy. So that is the ability to communicate in many different types of media and to be able to adapt your communication strategies for the media in which you're trying to communicate. So uh, communicating on Twitter Mm -hmm. is a very different experience than communicating on Facebook, through email and other online forms. I mean, you have to understand the grammar of the space. You have to understand how do you get your meaning across in 140 characters? Uh, how do you use hashtags effectively? Um, how do you, what is a retweet and how do you use it? Um, how do you direct reply to someone? How do you gain someone's attention? So all of these things suggest that it's a quite different uh, writing and reading practice than other spaces. Um, so... Then the next question is, well, how might that impact traditional literacy practices? We don't know. Uh, one thing might be that, um, you know, that people are tweeting about something they've written, so that they tweet about something that is in a, a longer format, like I tweet out a blog post or I tweet out this paper I just wrote, um, that I might actually get more feedback on that paper than I would from just my immediate surroundings, and it may actually help my writing in these other spaces, my blog or my paper, because I'm getting more people to view it and give me feedback. Um, I don't think we have enough, uh, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest yet that writing in these, this different format will make its way into academic writing and so somehow you know, degrade the quality of our academic papers. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen that research yet, and I don't think, uh, so I don't think we're, we're, we can say anything about that too much yet. So in the studies uh, that you did look at, what are some of the, uh, uh, I guess, list off some of the things that uh, were found in the studies that you looked at in your um, report? 
Yeah, so a couple things were um, that, well, I mentioned in terms of uh, tweeting increasing student-to-student interaction, um, increasing engagement with the course content and, uh, by tweeting out ideas and also pulling in um, new information that wasn't on the syllabus, enriching the, the course, um, increasing peer questioning, so peers questioning each other um, and their reflection on the course. Uh, making the experience of the class more authentic. So uh, oftentimes it feels like, you know, we're bounded in this classroom space and we're just, you know, learning with each other but not really connected to uh, sort of the subject matter beyond the class. So, if you know, if we're studying environmental science, we're not really connecting to an uh, environmental scientist. Well, Twitter allows you to connect out with the people that you're reading. You can tweet uh, your researchers or authors or even reporters whose stuff is you're con- considering in class, and they, they in, some, in many cases, and this happened in my class, will tweet you back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a way of, of really um, broadening the conversation beyond the, the class and, and deepening and enriching it with multiple perspectives. So Twitter really opens up a world for students. Um, should teachers then get on board with Twitter and start promoting its use for their classes? Um, well, I think it, it definitely depends on, on the instructor and the um, and the, the situ you know the, the context for your class. So, um, you know, other social media sites like Facebook have age restrictions, and you can't sign up for an account until you're you know a certain age. Um, and also, considering that Twitter is a very public space, most people don't, unlike Facebook, can find who sees their updates to just their friends, most people have public accounts, and so um, so it's a very public venue. Um, and many, in some teachers, some instructors may never may not use Twitter themselves, and so, you know, trying to insert yourself into this language um, really takes, I think, getting some, comf- being comfortable with it and takes some familiarity with it before you think about integrating it uh, into your pedagogy. So I think all those things are things to think about and when you think about in integrating Twitter in your class. But if you do decide to go that route, I think the educational research is suggesting there may be some uh, positive outcomes that, that might argue to take the chance. So you said that there is not currently a lot of research on this uh, topic as of yet. What are some of the studies that I guess you would like to see happen or yourself work on um, in regards to Twitter um, and education and literacy? Sure. I think I would like to see, uh, I think we see pockets of Twitter in high schools. Uh, We see these pop up on the news every now and then where um, it's not necessarily research, but it's anecdotal anecdotes of teachers using Twitter with high school students. I'd like to see more uh, research done on um, Twitter use among many different populations. So not just in college classrooms, but, you know, considering maybe adult adult learning, professional development, um, high school, different subject areas. So we can start to get a sense of what this looks like uh, across different groups of people in different contexts. I think that would be um, that would help us get a better understanding of this phenomenon and its potential integration and uh, uses in education. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. That was Christine Greenhouse, Assistant Professor in Michigan State University's College of Education in Educational Psychology and Educational Technology Program. She is co-author of the study Twitteracy, Tweeting as a New Literacy Practice. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, Impact Exposure. More than 5,000 international students representing 133 countries are enrolled at Michigan State, and nearly 1,000 are from China. Thousands of miles separate some from their family and friends, and sometimes an authentic Chinese meal makes them feel more at home here in East Lansing. Impact's Anjana Schrader reports. When graduate students see Lu Gua and Nian Si Wang want authentic Chinese food, they know exactly the place to go, Hong Kong. So would you call this an authentic Chinese dish? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think like 
everything as long as it is it appears in the menu in Chinese. I think they are more authentic than really? the one in English. The restaurant is located on Homer Road in Lansing, and for dinner, they have a special menu for natives to choose from. Oh, just the told by friends, like someone lives lives here longer than us, and they know better than us. So just to follow their suggestions. Wang says she's not surprised that there isn't a lot of restaurants serving authentic Chinese food in America. I know that before, so we, we don't care about it. We know that uh, if you can find one, then you are lucky. But if you cannot find one, that's a common thing. So. so some students will cook meals at home, and a Chinese grocery store is where they can buy some hard-to-find ingredients. There are several Chinese grocery stores in East Lansing. Grace Strong works at Great China Market, located on Trowbridge Road, just west of campus. She says the store has been open for more than 10 years. They buy um, many snacks, yeah, and uh, Chinese food, uh, such, as, uh, such as the uh, vegetables, Chinese vegetables. In American, it's uh, difficult, a little bit difficult to find them. Rong says the vegetables don't last for very long once they arrive at the store, since they come from Chicago and San Francisco. There are even some vegetables she doesn't know the English name for. Oh, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the, the, um, the English names. What is it, the English name? Yeah. Okay. Whether students cook for themselves or not, finding authentic Chinese food is nice. Whenever we come to a Chinese restaurant with Chinese, with authentic Chinese food, like it makes us feel whole, or, you know. Especially when the Americanized Chinese food tastes so different. Chinese food they have different kind of taste besides spicy, sweet, sour, besides those. Like this one, ma. Mm. Um, so the flavor is so different. Like American is kind of simple. For Impact Exposure, I'm Anjana Schrader. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, Impact Exposure. And for today's Michigan Storytelling segment, a poem by Angelina Mosier. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, I am Angelina Mosier. And this is my poem, Don't Rhyme. Now, when I first started out writing poetry, uh, I got a lot of advice, do's and do nots. And in the beginning, all I could do was rhyme. (laughs) I don't know if I was trying to make straight up raps or poetry, but I could only rhyme. And uh, someone told me, don't rhyme. So uh, this is actually kind of a little rebellious uh, response to that advice. Don't rhyme. I don't care if it's explicit or sublime, but please don't rhyme. It will only constrain your mind. Look for various forms and kinds, kind, no mean. Mean, meaning, look, look, look to meaning. Look to definition, significance, eloquence, fragrance, experience. Don't rhyme. Blue. It's my favorite color. Blue. Like his eyes. And the little icon for iTunes. Blue like the sky. Blue like my jeans. Blue like your parents' color. Blue like the man group. Blue like the berries in your pancakes. Blue like my birthstone and the color of my brother's face when he was born. Blue like the planet of Pluto. Blue like the genie not in the bottle. The bottle that holds a message carried by the ocean. But the ocean, the ocean is not blue. And people are lying when they say the ocean is blue. It's not. It's perfectly happy. And it waves every time I see it. It reflects the sun and the sky. The stars and the moon give a direction. People complain because it's salty. But really, all that means is it has buoyancy, and we're bobbing, bobbing for apples, but we can't seem to sink our teeth in because this glass steep 
design doesn't taste as good as that apple on the tree, even if it's equally appealing. Blame the rhyme scheme. Tell me I'm lame and I'm an amateur, but don't blame the ocean for the trash that's washed up on shore. And next time you bob for those apples, look at what you're fishing for. But whatever you do, whatever you do, don't rhyme. Thank you. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.